Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 19, the Temperamental Magic Edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. From bad food to contaminated water to climate change, there's an alarmist documentary out there to stoke your worst fears, and on today's podcast, we're going to fret about them. The release of the raunchy Seth Rogen, Zach Efron team up Neighbors continues the dominance of improvisational technique in film comedy, and now is a good opportunity to assess the pros and cons of going off script. The game this week is Kisses and Disses, in which I offer a quote from a famous or semi-famous review, and our panelists have to name the movie and the author of the piece. Then we'll wrap things up, as always, with 30 seconds to sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. Today sees the release of Fed Up, a documentary that touts itself as the film the food industry doesn't want you to see. The doc comes with terrifying warnings about big sugar, the rise of obesity in America, and the prediction that the younger generation will die earlier than their parents. Probably not before their parents, though. Uh, uh, But but Fed Up is just the latest in a steady diet of activist documentaries that seek to raise awareness, or better still, scare the shit out of people. Uh, But are activist documentaries hazardous for moviegoers' health? With docs about the deadly implications of everything from climate change to peak oil to our water supply... How do we know what to panic about? And what do these docs mean to film as a form? Joining me to discuss it are Nathan Rabin. Hello. And via Skype, Noel Murray. Hello, Noel. Hi, Scott. Um, so, Nathan. Yes. Uh, earlier this week, uh, you tweeted, uh, quote, just saw Fed Up, a.k.a. everything Nathan consumes will kill him. Uh, <laughs> its message hit close to home, particularly the part about my imminent death. <laughs> uh, so, so how scary is this movie? And are, are you susceptible generally to movies like Fed Up? I am incredibly susceptible to movies like Fed Up. Uh, and this movie scared the holy living fuck out of me because basically its message is sugar will kill you. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of explains this paradox where we've never been more obsessed with losing weight. We've never been working out more. We've never uh, you know, had more societal shame towards people who are overweight. And yet obesity keeps keeps skyrocketing. And like, why does this happen? And what they basically say is it, it's sugar. Sugar will kill you. Sugar will destroy you. And I basically live off sugar. I, I drink 8 to 12 uh, cans of soda every day. Um, I just shove garbage in my face all the time. Um, and, and what this basically says is that, you know, big sugar, they're like tobacco. They're like guns. They are horrible people who are trying to destroy your children. And they're trying to get you while they're young. That's what makes it even more insidious. And, you know, for me, a lot of my sense of self, a lot of my identity comes from from my online friendship with Captain Crunch. Uh, real Captain Crunch, follow him on Twitter. But now I'm starting to feel like Captain Crunch might be an evil motherfucker. And now maybe I should feel ashamed of my friendship with Captain Crunch instead of uh, feeling really, really proud of it. So I was very, very, very impressed by it. One of the other messages uh, that they have is that cheese will kill you. Cheese. And that cheese is evil. And what cheese does is they take all of the most you know disgusting fatty parts uh, out of milk and they turn it into cheese so that it's like the super evil form of dairy. And I fucking love cheese. I, I, if I could, I would just mainline <laughs> cheese all the time. So it is it is pretty terrifying. Uh, and, and I did like after seeing him, like, I'm going to make serious changes in my life. No more sugar, no more junk food. Uh, I have a di- uh, Dr. Pepper in front of me as I say this. <laughs> Which you may speak to the fact that, you know, even though these films terrify you in the moment, they might not instill a lasting change. I guess my larger question then about alarmist documentaries generally, I mean, I mean, you, you're not, this isn't the first type of documentary 
you've seen on this. Not no, I mean, no, no. I mean, on this specific subject, but the tone of this thing is probably... Right, is the, pretty... I think the, the This Will Kill You is sort of a whole subset of the documentary world. And again, I'm very susceptible to that. I guess kind of the big ones uh, for that are uh, An Inconvenient Truth. Right. Um, but we're all still around eight years later. Well, I think right. single-handedly I I disproves everything. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was... We're that was... all still alive. Uh, well, what about what about you, Noel? What, what is your reaction to these uh, activist documentaries? Do they have a they have an impact on you, or, or uh, do you get numbed uh, by them after a while? I think numbed is the right word, actually. I think that when I watch these movies, I tend to get kind of defensive about them. Like, like who are you to tell me that I shouldn't be eating all this crap or doing all these things? So I, I, I tend to scrutinize them very closely. I think part of that has to do a little bit with my background in journalism, going to journalism school, and that I'm always sort of looking at these films, trying to figure out, uh, what part of the story I'm not being told. Uh, and, and what's weird about that is that, in general, I think politically, socially, I tend to be more on the side of the points of view that these activist documentaries are trying to present. And yet I want them to present the best possible case they can. And when I feel like they're fudging facts or I feel like um, you know, they're, they're having a token uh, person to contradict what's being said, put forward just so they can then, you know, have somebody else follow him up in an interview and say why he's wrong without giving that person again a chance to respond. You know, I, I feel like in those situations that uh, that my opinion is being kind of uh, narrowed into what they want me to believe rather than kind of letting me make up my own mind. Well, I think there's a, I mean, just, just the word activist in general. I mean, that this is not, you know, something like fed up or inconvenient truth. These are not. This is not journalism per se. This is. These are movies that are that sort of grab you by the labels and say this is a big problem. Oh, uh, totally. Yeah. And well, so, I mean, and, and so that changes the agenda, and it, and it does, I think, um, prompt a necessary skepticism uh, as to their you know agenda and how they go about pursuing it. Oh, totally. I mean, movies like Fed Up and and Inconvenient Truth, you know, are waiting for Superman. They are propaganda, and you know, to kind of drive the point home, uh, Fed Up kind of ends with you know, now you go do this, visit this website make these changes, blah, blah, blah. And it is, you know, part of you finds it inspirational and part of it's like, yes, we will destroy the sugar menace. And part of you thinks like, please stop pushing your fucking agenda down my throat. Please stop telling me that the way that I live is wrong. Uh, it does. It, it inspires these complicated emotions where on one hand you feel very defensive. Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker. And if you tell me that something will kill me or will destroy me, like my first instinct is to be like, God, that's true. I should be on alert for all of these horrible things that will destroy both me and society as a whole. <laughs> uh, uh, to, but to, but to, to follow up on that though I think that uh, you know, going back to the numbing effect I think it's better when these documentaries do at least leave you with something to do that's a good thing well, so, so some level like, of hope so it's not just all uh, apocalyptic oh my god the end is near chicken little egg one, one of the uh, sort of activist documentaries I wouldn't even call it an activist documentary that really intrigued me was Christmas Collapse uh, which was about the threat of peak oil, because what I mean, that that movie is really just a monologue uh, by this one guy who thinks peak peak oil is where where we're all going to where society is going to collapse. Uh, but there's this subtle implication that that this is his story too, and that and that some of the, some of his his theories may may in fact be uh, a little bit out there, and that and that the collapse that we're witnessing is is his own as much as it is the planet's. Uh, to me, that that's kind of a, a an example of of turning this whole genre on its head. 
Oh, totally. Well, it's not pushing uh, an agenda. It's not pushing an argument. It's exploring uh, that argument and it's challenging that argument. And yeah, I definitely would not describe that uh, as being an activist uh, documentary. Um, although, yeah, uh, again, subverting it uh, more than anything else. And yeah, it's definitely, I don't think you, you walk away from that movie thinking that is what Chris Smith believes. Uh, that is what he wants to put forth into the world. Uh, again, I think it's... it's uh, exploring an argument as opposed to aggressively uh, pushing it forward, which is the the, the baseline uh, for these movies. Yeah, I, th- I think I think ultimately what matters is how much actual cinematic artistry is brought into this thing. I mean, are are you making a a movie that is trying to make a point exclusively with no other objective other than making a point, or are you trying to construct uh, a film that has characters that you know with uh, uh, a wide variety of viewpoints that you can agree with or disagree with? And I, and I think that. When films that are that do have a point also try to make them more of a story, I think the films I like the best are the ones that are activist docs that actually have a narrative that aren't just here's an issue and here's a bunch of people talking about the issue, but rather here's an issue and let me tell you uh, let me let me actually do something participatory and bring you into it. I, I think of an example. Um, there's this film I saw a couple years ago called You've Been Trumped. Oh, um, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which is about Donald Trump's attempt to, you know, to to build a, a resort in this uh, in this you know community in, in Scotland, um, and that film actually sort of follows the filmmaker as he tries to protest and, and get his voice heard, and that's much much more interesting because you actually see him doing something and you're following his story. So whether or not you think Donald Trump is a tool, which he is, and he's very clearly a tool in this movie, <laughs> yeah. uh, you you still have something you can hang on to. Well, there's a sense of drama there too. I mean, I, th- though, though that style can be a little bit deceptive too because that's that's a that's a propagandist tool as well to kind of say here's the individual story that I'm going to tell you. There's a nugget that's going to kind of back up my point, and that can be manipulative its own, in its own way. Uh, I was thinking of this this movie, uh, A Place at the Table, which is about uh, which is about food and hunger issues, and uh, that was a tactic that it used, and it's a tactic that Michael Moore uses all the time, uh, just like give you some kind of that little personal story that just that takes up about five or ten minutes of the film that that's gonna you know give you kind of a an emotional support to 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 whatever abstract point the film is trying to make um though though i will say noel um on the formal front uh you know you know michael glauiger uh you know who's a documentary filmmaker that we i think we all admire he died recently he made sort of a career of documenting global woes in movies like working man's death in whore's glory uh and he did it in a, in a way that was just extraordinarily expressive how, how important are aesthetics in activist docs are, are we are we asking too much of documentaries that simply seek to persuade us I, you know i'll be honest with you i'm not I think the documentary has a wide range of things it can do. I, I know, I know some of them. Some, I know you and some of the people that I know who are who are big film buffs are really only interested in documentaries if they're cinematic. Mm-hmm. For me, I like documentaries also as journalism, and I don't necessarily feel that they have to be expressive in a cinematic way for them to still be engaging and interesting if they're put really to, put together really well as a piece of journalism. That said, you know I, I, that doesn't discount something like Michael Glauber could do because. When you have that kind of immersive experience where you are um, being sort of forced to live alongside other people and, and see the world from their point of view, uh, you know, it, it has an, undoubtedly has an effect. And I, and I think it's something that um, is preferable than a, one, than a slanted documentary that doesn't have that going for it. 
Right, and I, I think I definitely uh, fall more uh, where Noel's uh, feelings more more so than Scott's. Um, but again, I feel like you know the stronger a film is aesthetically, the stronger its argument uh, tends to be. Take a film like uh, The Act of Killing, which yeah. is extraordinarily uh, striking and ambitious uh, visually, and because of it, is so much more powerful and so much more compelling, uh, both as journalism, as filmmaking, as storytelling, as opposed to something that would just be more kind of. Uh, and less inspired. So yeah, I definitely feel like it it, it makes if the case so much stronger uh, if it has a sharp sense of aesthetics, if it has a sharp sense of visuals, if it's not just putting forth an op-ed uh, in cinematic form, which is what I think a lot of these really weak uh, documentaries... And you know, God, thank, thank fucking God Bush isn't in office anymore because he inspired so much right. terrible filmmaking. I mean, like if I saw any more like terrible leftist activist docs, like I was just going to become a fucking Republican <laughs> Spite. That's how yeah. bad it got. They, they uh, so I think bad. that's one of the that's one of your gifts, Obama, is you had inspired far fewer awful, awful, awful films attacking you and your legacy. Still yeah. some, um, but right. you're nowhere near the plague. Uh, and often that was part of my problems. It was you know that these were redundant, these were necessary, but also that they were so poorly made. Yeah, you know they just kind of seemed like if you're on our side, you will be very pro this film, which it should not be. You should not have to agree with the film uh, in order to find it compelling. Well, that's the thing that always worried me too about these films that, 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 uh, that bothered me was that, is that if your agenda, if the thing that you want to do is to, is to get a message across, uh, you know, I think as a, as a, as a movie goer, as a critic, that, that doesn't interest me. Uh, you know, I, I think, I, I think maybe I, you, you all maybe see me as a little bit more stricter about, <laughs> about, you know, Form, formalist documentaries and I actually am I do I, I do want them to be dramatic uh, they, they can be dramatic they can be journalistic uh, but I want them to be complex and I, I just I you know and, and not really hit that that propaganda uh, bell or ring that propaganda bell too much um, um, so I, I wanted to end with this question uh, to you both uh, how are we going to die uh, <laughs> I, I, is it going to be global warming, uh, genetically engineered frankenfood, contaminated water, peak oil, crushing personal and national debt? Uh, what, what, what's, uh, what's, what's the documentary or what's the form of, uh, of, uh, of uh, death, I guess? Or, or, well, or... I've, I have a very short attention span uh, and I drink a lot of soda, so I'm going to say sugar. So fed sugar, up, fed sugar, up. sugar and cheese is going to kill all of us, but it's going to kill me a, a lot quicker uh, than it does anybody else. What about you, Noel? Well, I want to say to Nathan uh, that that uh, Courtney Love once said that she lost a lot of weight when she realized that, the, that there were so many things you could eat that were not cheese. Uh, <laughs> so uh, when Courtney Love is healthier than you are, Nathan, you know you need to you need to be thinking hard in the mirror. Well, uh, she she I, she is she is my role model uh, in every way, per, particularly when it comes to diet. Uh, uh, Scott, we're going to die from uh, lack of potable water. Sorry. Really interesting, yeah. huh? Yeah, I, I was kind. Of, I think it's global. Water war, I think I think global warming is is going to be that, that. That seems like a solid slow killer to me. I think the activist documentary, A Water World, uh, made a lot of compelling uh, <laughs> cases about uh, yeah. what our future will look. Yeah, like. I'm not going to drink my own pee. Forget it. <laughs> uh, I'll just I'll I'll, uh, I'll die before that happens. Uh, all right, uh, Nathan and Noel, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you. With the raunchy Seth Rogen, Zac Efron comedy Neighbors set to become the summer's first comedy hit, now's as good a time as any to discuss the continued dominance of improvisation in film comedy. The director of Neighbors, Nick Stoller, is one of Judd Apatow's stable of filmmakers and seems to share Apatow's willingness to accommodate a lot of off-script tomfoolery. 
Recently, a second cut of Anchorman 2 was released to theaters with 763 new jokes, suggesting a wealth of alternate takes that were left on the cutting room floor. But what are the benefits and drawbacks of improvisation? Are there certain filmmakers and actors who handle it better than others? Joining me for this free-form segment, which listeners are certain to compare to jazz, <laughs> are Nathan Rabin. <laughs> hey there, hey there, cool pimp daddy. And uh, Genevieve Kosky. Hello. Uh, Genevieve, let's start with you. Oh, uh, we? Uh, we must. Because <laughs> uh, um, you, you, you've seen Neighbors. I have. That, so you have an advantage there. Uh, what do you see as the hallmarks of a heavily improvised movie? And uh, how, how strong of improvisational influence did you detect in Neighbors? I mean, I think there was a fair amount of improvisation in Neighbors. Obviously, that's something you uh, can only guess at, not being uh, on set. Um, the thing about Neighbors is, obviously, you know, you mentioned Nick Stoller comes, you know, is willing to improvise, and obviously Seth Rogen comes from that school as well. But, you know, when I think uh, great improvisers, Zac Efron does not spring to mind, sure. nor does Rose Byrne, um, even no. though she has been kind of circling uh, that crew for a while. Um but I think what, what obviously, like I said, there's no way to know for sure. But generally, um, when I see riffs, like extended riffs, that's what I assume is born of improv. improv. Um, in Neighbors specifically, there's one very long, uh, some might argue too long, uh, riff <laughs> of topping the uh, bros before hose. Oops. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't think it was too long. I, think that, I actually think that was like one of the best things in the movie. Wait, you're saying that something might have gone on too long in a Seth Rogen movie? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, That's impossible. Actually, Neighbors is a nice, tight uh, 90 minutes, so yeah. I, I, I can't fault it there. Wow. Um, but yeah, so anything that is uh, kind of riffing on the same idea or topping, uh, uh, topping itself over and over again, that's generally, I assume, born of improv. Sure. Um, although I think there's there tends to be <clears throat> a little confusion or uh, assumptions made that like the actors are just spouting that off on camera. I think when we talk about improvisation in film, it's more of like a writing tool than a performance tool. Like a lot of that is happening between takes. It's a director or, or a writer like saying like try this or mm-hmm. blah, blah blah or you know someone will say something everyone will laugh and they'll be like, okay, do it that way next time. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, I, I think very little of what we see on screen is actually the first time that is being said by someone. Well, when I talked to Adam McKay about Anchorman 2, um, he was saying his process is basically, and I think this is true of Apatow as well, is, you know, they have a script, uh, they do the scene as written, and then and then when that's done, then, then it's kind of time to, to throw ideas out there. And I mean, I, I think he actually was using a bullhorn himself to uh, to get uh, to throw ideas out there. He was taking taking ideas from anybody on the set who ha- had them and just in, out of this soup or whatever you, you you end up kind of cutting a movie together um so i think it does start with a, a certain structure or, or, or a uh, or coverage what, what i guess they would call coverage uh and then and then from there from there you can kind of build on it and, and, and i'd like to to reiterate uh kind of uh Genevieve's point of like we we have no fucking idea what yeah. is improvised and what is not improvised and again it's kind of this weird thing where on one hand if you see something and it has this incredible sense of spontaneity and, and joy and like these people are just locked into each other like oh my god that must be improvised or if you see something that's like incredibly sloppy and desperate and people are just kind of throwing out things with this incredible flop sweat like you also feel like oh my god that must be improvised uh like for example a movie that i saw last year that was 
uh, just about the worst fucking thing in the entire fucking universe, uh, and called The Internship. And it was Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson, who are widely considered, you know, among the best improvisers in all of film. Uh, they did a movie called Wedding yeah. Crashers, uh, whose success, I think, was in large part. I don't consider them that. I'm not going to I'm, afford I'm, them I'm gonna, that. I'm going to fucking downgrade Vince Vaughn. What the hell? I don't, I don't like Vince Vaughn. No. I, I think he's fucking terrible most of the time. But he is a gifted improviser. I, mm. I will grant him that in the movie uh, Swingers. He, he does a good fucking sure. job of improvising in that movie. And Wedding Crashers, you know, I think a lot of what people responded to is like, oh my God, these people are this amazing comedy team. They have this incredible chemistry. They riff, they improvise, they make the magic happen. Um, and I think, you know, with a movie like The Internship, I think they kind of imagine like, oh, they're going to fucking show up on set and magic is going to happen. They're going to... And it just didn't. It, it just died. And I have no idea how much of that movie was improvised. I have no idea how much wasn't improvised. But yeah, there is that sense of uh, it can be such a crutch right. um, used in the wrong hands and I feel like that is a lot of at times what it is there's like a few people for whom this is incredible skill set and a lot of people who just don't have it well you've heard a lot I, I've heard a lot of complaints from from actors who have that skill set and who feel like they're put in productions where too much is expected of them where, where, where they're just kind of you you go riff now and there's no structure to it and I, I think that's kind of um that that's I mean maybe it's just built in the word improvisation that there's a lack of structure but in fact there is structure there is guidance uh, there is a plan it's not just it's not just people randomly saying stuff right well, it's it's a discipline you know and I feel like people don't realize that. I think it's it's a lack of discipline that it's just people just going for it right it's just this sloppiness yeah I mean improvisation in comedy and just in life is should be a garnish it's it's not the it's not the full meal like i think it was in your uh, adam mckay interview uh he said like the script got us like 85 percent of the way there like the script was the b plus and the improvisation mm-hmm. on top of it is what brings it up to an a you know if without the the story if the story isn't funny if the characters aren't you know well realized then just riffing riffing bits isn't gonna no, no. do anything no, and there's a thing too. Again, to go back to the McKay, is that his process of writing a script is actually quite interesting. And in, in that he he and Farrell will just they they start off with a, you know what he called sort of a big bag of ideas, just a bunch of stuff that they want to include in a movie. That's a very weird way of going about making a movie. But it, I think it maybe accounts for that at least the feeling of, of of spontaneity, which is what you associate with improvisation, even though that might not be the case. Right. It's like I was saying, like. I think it's a mistake to think of improvisation as a performance tool. It's more of a writing tool. And it's something that is, I, I think, probably more valuable in the writing stage than, you know, when you're uh, on on set with the exception of a few, like, very gifted improvisers. Yeah. Right. And, and one kind of interesting uh, kind of subset of this is the films of, of somebody like Lynn Shelton, who kind of comes from that sort of mumblecore world, uh, and whose hump day was completely improvised. Like, there was no screenplay for that. And it was fucking brilliant and there was a spontaneity and this verisimilitude and this sense of life that these are real people having real interactions in the moment um and then in the subsequent films that she's made like yeah it just it, it's a magic it's, it's hard it's to death call. you know like right. her, her last film like touchy-feely just felt like a bunch of people just, just scrambling to try and create something and coming up with nothing and it was like 80 minutes and it was just painful and again it's it's a you know <laughs> if i can use the incredibly tired jazz metaphor sometimes the fucking magic happens and sometimes it's just some people squonking around uh for a couple of minutes embarrassing everybody well, I was just thinking, Scott, a minute ago, you said like how some uh, performers resent or, you know, are frustrated when they're just expected to, you know, show up on set and do stuff. Sure. 
um, a few a few months ago, Edgar Wright was in town, and we we had a, a drink with him before a, a showing. And he was talking about how he was uh, how he got frustrated with the question uh, how much how much of this is improvised. It, like yeah. it, it was just like always it always came up in every single interview. And with someone like you know Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, like th- those are heavily scripted. Like they sure. put a lot yeah, of work yeah. into that They're script. Super tight, right? And I think like the success of films from the Judd Apatow school has led to the assumption that that's how comedy is done now. Yes. And it, it really kind of undermines the the craft of writing. Well, I think, yeah. And, and I, it's a, it's a, it can be a pretty bad assumption to make. Um, and especially with Edgar Wright, I don't even get why you would ask him that question right. because, because it feels like every beat of his films is, are so, they're so planned out yeah. um, in, in a good way. I don't feel like they're, they're, I don't mean to imply that they're, that they're airless in any way. They're just, they're just mapped out, uh, which kind of brings me to the other side of that, which is I feel like one of the problems, you know, we, we just had a movie Movie of the week on Sherlock Jr., uh, the Buster Keaton film, and we, a lot of the talk in that forum and in and, and, and Noel's keynote on it was about um, how uh, how Buster Keaton used sort of a fixed frame uh, and used parts of the frame uh, that, that to enhance the comedy. That was a key part of creating comedy for him, and in in an improvisational movie or a heavily improv improvised movie, I think there's a, a tendency style wise to to kind of just you know put the put the camera and, and nail the camera to the floor and just allow the actors to do what they're going to do in front of it and and so what you end up missing I think is uh, is you know ways that you can ways that you can use the camera to make to 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 make a movie funnier to make it more structured uh, you know to you know I miss that you know and and uh, you don't see it that often um, uh, unfortunately I mean I think I think even you know, I mean, Apatow's getting better at it, but if you look at like the forty-year-old version, which is a movie I love, I mean, that film looks like garbage. You know, I mean, you know, for a major studio film, he's really doing nothing with the camera in that movie, um, and I think it hurt. I think it hurts hurts film to not have a, a little bit more of a balance, a little more structure, and a little bit more style, uh, and have 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 you know have the camera participate in the comedy too. Well, I think there's a sense for really heavily improvised movies. Uh, the laughs come first and everything else comes second. Uh, that includes, you know, sort of any kind of aesthetic visual style. It's kind of interesting uh, to look at a partnership like uh, Bill Murray and Wes Anderson, where mm-hmm. Wes Anderson, you get the sense that nothing is ever improvised uh, at all in the frame. And then Bill Murray is somebody who, when he's not acting Wes Anderson movies, improvises every single thing. He so improvises his life. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, so there's this interesting <laughs> tension, and also there's, I think you have a certain respect when you have somebody who generally improvises everything who is following a script, and there's a, the kind of purity and kind of, you know, um, I don't know, elegance to that. Uh, that that's really nice. There's a, but, uh, you know, another another way of looking at it, too, this uh, one name that came to, kind of came to mind um when I was thinking about this topic was Christopher Guest. Mm-hmm. And there, there's yeah. kind of an example of someone who actually did find a form in the sort of mockumentary or documentary style uh, that accommodate, accommodates this sort of riffing beautifully, you right. know, because you don't, you don't have, you know, because, you know, you are fake documenting something. And, right. and, and so that, uh, that, that style is completely complementary to, to what the actors are doing in front of it. Right, that kind it, of became a tra- sorry, uh, became kind of a trap, you know, and kind of became a shtick uh, very kind of early on. And now I think you know when you see mockumentaries, you kind of roll your eyes because they've been overdone to well, such true. an extent. Like all of these beats have just been done to death. And even Christopher Guest, like you know, by the end of like for your consideration, it's kind of like you kind of need to do something new. 
Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, it is a style that is very friendly to improvisation because it's, it is a style, but it's a static style. It's like you were talking about with Sherlock Jr. Like mm. the, you know, the camera doesn't really move, you know, maybe handheld, but there's, you know, um, the static, staticness is part of the style. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and also you're kind of catch, capturing the messiness of real life. Right. The, yeah. the fake, the uh, fake real life. Yeah. Like, uh, it, the, like that's mockumentary and improv, improvisational comedy are just like kind of a perfect marriage, which I'm sure is why it has been overused so much. We, we need to find the next, uh, version of the next generation of that format one thing i would emphasize though you're saying neighbors came in nice and tight and and again we don't know how much improvisation went into neighbors maybe not that much um but i I did find an interview with uh, zach efron talking about uh how stoller would uh you know be kind of directing him between scenes like i I get the sense that stoller really guided uh efron's uh improvisational uh (laughs) uh, such as it is yeah yeah has to have to know what he i think efron's terrific in it efron kept insisting that he have a gun in every scene stoller scripted efron's improvisation for him yeah i think that's probably that was probably a wise choice but uh but I, i mean i guess the other danger is that is that you fail to make choices you know that that um you know, I mean, it's fun to have a, 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 a two-hour-plus alternate version of Anchorman 2 out there uh, with a lot of new jokes, and, and uh, there's, there's, there's something kind of fan-friendly about that. But, uh, but, uh, but again, I mean, you get a movie like This is 40, which, is, which I, you know, I, I enjoy the messiness of that to, to a degree, but, but at a certain point, you really need to kind of you know, put the hammer down and, and, and really shape, something, shape it. And it, it's, you're, you're sh- not only shaping individual scenes, which, which if they're poorly... You know, can go on way, way too long, but also the the overall form of the film, which which can again be kind of sloppy. Well, that's almost certainly an outgrowth of, and I think it's no coincidence that the the recent you know rise over the last ten years or so of this form is, is uh, uh, dovetails with the rise of digital cinema and, and digital cameras. Yeah, like definitely. you know, being able to shoot for hours and hours, and you know, there there's no concern for you know having to shape things or, or having to throw things away you can you know film another a whole other version of your movie and it you know you're not wasting there's no waste yeah, so totally. um you know that's it's the classic blessing and curse scenario you're right it's it's a it's a um temperamental magic that is that that you're trying to create uh by by doing things this way for sure um, but at the same time, you know, you get, you get, you know, uh, with improv, you get jokes that are just so completely off the wall and, and it's surprising and spontaneous that, that, uh, you know, there's something kind of fun, fun about that as well. There's something kind of ragged uh, and, and enjoyable. Uh, well, well, uh, Nathan and Genevieve, we have been, uh, we, we, we've been riffing quite a bit. Uh, uh, maybe we should stop riffing. Come back next week when we release an entirely different version of this same segment. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, Genevieve, uh, Nathan, thank you. Thank you. Now it's time for our game this week, which I'm calling Kisses and Disses after the National Society of Film Critics Anthology of the same name, which I'm sure you're all aware of. Uh, we're going to make this a buzzer-non-buzzer hybrid. I'll go to each of you individually with a quote from a famous or notorious review and give you the opportunity to name the movie and or the critic who wrote the review so you can score up to two points. If you get either of them wrong, the other two contestants will be able to buzz in with the answer. Joining me are... Keith Phipps. Nathan Raven. And uh, Matt Singer. <laughs> All right. Um... You know, Matt. Let's start with you. I'm gonna I'm gonna reach into the gaming hat here, which is a, in the form of a mug, and uh, let's let's uh, let's let's get this thing going. Are you ready? 
I'm ready. Okay. And, and names and uh, movie titles and, and names are, are going to be cut out for obvious reasons. Okay? Here we go. Quote, I won't comment on Blank's deliberate on-screen references to his former film reviewer mother, except to note how her colleagues now shamelessly bestow reviews as belated nursery presents. To others, Blank might suggest retroactive abortion. <laughs> Matt Singer. Oh, no. So which do which do you want? I want but want either critic? either one. You can get you can get a total of two points. Name the critic okay, and name well, the name I know the it's I know it's Armand White. C- correct. <laughs> and I know who he's talking about, which is Noah Baumbach, but I'm not sure which movie. I'm going to guess Greenberg. No, that is incorrect. Oh. Uh, is Margot at the wedding? No, that's oh. negative one for you. I'm going to say uh, Francis Ha. No, negative one for you. What the fudge? Fascinating. It's Mr. Jealousy. Mr. Oh. Jealousy. That review was kind of... Wow. That review was dug up by Jay Hoberman after, uh, after, after uh, Armand White declared that he did not wish a retroactive abortion uh, on uh, Noah Baumbach. That, yes. I'm just going to say it. That seems harsh. Yes. All right. This goes to, this goes to Keith Phipps. Fascinating. Uh, are you ready, Keith? Yes. What is the point of the scenes with the auditioning parents? They are all seen as broad, desperate comic caricatures. They are not funny. They are not touching. There is no truth in them. They, they don't even work as parodies. There is an idiocy here that seems almost intentional, as if the filmmakers plotted to leave anything of interest or entertainment value out of the episodes. This is uh, Roger Ebert's uh, famous review of the film North. That's correct. Uh, two points for Keith Phipps. Uh, of course, the famous quote wow. there being, I hated hate, this hate. movie. Hated, 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 hated this movie. Hated it. Uh, okay, so uh, Keith's got Keith comes back out of the out of the grave. Uh, he, <laughs> it's uh, so it's one one two negative ones, but uh, Nathan can also climb out with this. Am I do I begin this in some sort of grave? Come on, are you ready? <laughs> All right. Okay. Blank has always been one of the least sensual and least erotic of directors, and his attempts here at phallic humor are like a professor's lead balloons. He tries to work up kicky, violent scenes, carefully estranging you from the victims so you can enjoy the rapes and beatings. But I think one is more likely to feel cold antipathy toward the movie than horror at the violence or enjoyment of it either. Oh, goodness. I am I'm totally thrown for a loop here. Uh, I'm guessing that it's Pauline Kael. Correct. Um, but I do not know which motion picture she is talking about. Okay. Uh, buzzer, buzzer, Who's who's in? It's open. I've read this review, but I can't remember what film it's for or who she's talking about. I'm too afraid to lose a point. All right. It's a Clockwork Orange. Oh. A Clockwork Orange phallic. Oh, I thought the phallic sense. thing would I sure. thought, give that away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Essential. Yeah, not bad. So, so Nathan gets at least a point. He's, he's at zero. <laughs> he's, he, um, and, I'm halfway out of the grave at this point. All right, Matt, this is to you. Oh, my God. This is the one I can't even read. Um, all right. I'm, I'm, there's going to be a lot of blanks here because I can't. Yeah, you'll you'll know when I get there. Okay. Blank is the tongue, mouth, fingers, and lips of a lover. The audience is the blank. Watch your audience. This is where blank goes down on the audience. It starts with long lips with a it licks with a nose bump on the joy button slowly. He smiles as he does this. Watch the audience begin to squirm. Then he takes the audience's blank in his mouth and licks it like crazy. The audience is ready on that precipice, then he then calm. He backs off. Long licks again, brings brings a finger to massage a bit, licks from the bottom to the top. The audience is cooing. Uh, uh, Matt Singer, uh, uh, what is this? What what the hell is this, Matt Singer? 
I don't know, but I was laughing too hard to hear. It wait, 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 wait. Let's let let's hit him, let him guess. Uh, uh, you don't know either the 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 author or the or the infamous review in question. No, no. I will let whoever wants. And, and, and Noel, no, excuse me. Keith was on that. All right, that is uh, Mr. Harry Knowles. Yes, that's uh, correct. Writing about uh, Guillermo del Toro, a favorite director. <laughs> yes. Uh, comparing <laughs> what he does in the film Blade Two. Yes. Uh, to Cunilingus. <laughs> Correct, correct. <laughs> this review, I, I think we should probably link to it in, uh, in the uh, on the podcast page. Is the most insane thing you will ever read in your life. You mean the Peabody Award winning review? I don't I'll even know. It, 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 it's but I don't know. It's going to be more noted than anything I ever write. So which is really <laughs> depressing. He has two points for uh, for Keith, who is now in a dominant position, and now. Uh, uh, much like, much like, much like you, Del Toro. Let's, let's leave it right. Let's leave it right there. And, and, uh, and I had, I had even read that uh, review, but I think I blocked it out of my mind. Yeah, yeah that's, never, that's, 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 that's legendary. That's for the best. For um, the, for the yeah. right reasons. Um, so, Keith, this is to you. Quote: Blank was presented for the first time on the closing night of the New York Film Festival, October fourteenth, nineteen seventy-two. That date should become a landmark in movie history comparable to May 29, 1913, the night the Rite of Spring was first performed in music history. There was no riot and no one threw anything at the screen, but I think it's fair to say that the audience was, a, was in a state of shock because blank has the same kind of hypnotic ex- excitement as the Rite of Spring, the same primitive force, and the same thrusting, jabbing eroticism. That is Harry. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> that is Pauline Kale talking about Last Tango. In That's Paris. right. Two points for oh. Keith Phipps. Uh, uh, everyone knew that, that didn't one, they? You're walking away with this one, Keith. He is walking away, but that, that's his style. Cr- <laughs> yeah. it, it hasn't cr- been my style for a while. Crushing so. people on games. Uh, I, and I haven't got there yet. So I'm gonna, I'm All right, Nathan, this is to yes. you. Are you ready? Uh, as I'll ever be. Okay. Quote, October is early, but not too early to acknowledge blank as the worst film of the year. No conceivable competition will match, match the sourness, cynicism, and pretension of Mr. Blank's debut feature. Turned loose with a camera and the Emperor's new clothes, the writer of the vastly better Blank creates an aimless vision of Midwestern teenage Anomi, complete with drugs, garbage, dead cats, and neat tricks like turning off Granny's respirator. When it comes to boy wonders exploring the cutting edge of independent cinema, the buck stops cold right here. Hmm. (laughs) Critic and or name of movie. This is exciting October, radio. October, 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 I don't know. All right, open up. All right, that's Keith. It's Janet Maslin writing about Gummo. That's right, Janet ah. Maslin on Gummo. Yeah, it sounds like it was Corinne. Yeah, yeah, Corinne has that apparently on his wall or something. He was sort of pro, pro, badge of honor, that review for him, obviously. Um, because, because, of course. Um, all right, Matt Singer. Keith is way, yes. way ahead, so this is just for fun at this point. Uh, all right, you ready? Are you ready, Matt? Going yes. to see Blank at the Palais of the Cannes Film Festival is like attending a satanic ritual at St. Peter's Basilica. Blank is a big, ugly, ungainly device to give teenagers the impression they're seeing a movie. <sighs> what might have premiered at the Cannes Film Festival that's like attending a satanic ritual at St. <laughs> Peter's Basilica? Big, ugly, ungainly device to give teenagers the impression they're seeing a movie. Hmm. Sure, it's very obvious once you say it, but All right, I so am drawing a blank. blank. All right, it's uh, not up. It's, it's not up, is it? You, uh, no, it is not. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's buzzers, uh, guys. No, I the I think I know the the author, but I don't want to risk my uh, lead. So. Okay, it's uh, right. 
I you, want it okay. to be Southland Tales. No, it's not. It's it's a Ro- Roger Ebert's Godzilla review. Ah, yeah. Okay. I thought it was I thought it was Ebert, but yeah. I, I didn't know. Yeah, a lot of Ebert. Ebert really. Roland was, Emmerich Godzilla. When he, when he uh, that Roland Emmerich Godzilla. That, that film was quite poor. Wow. He did not. He did I, not I, like that movie. That at was at Cannes. It was an opening night right. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a closing night, one of those things. It wasn't a competition. It won the Palme d'Or. Oh. <laughs> it, was, it was the first write-in <laughs> winner for the Palme yeah, d'Or. very that'd odd. Be, that'd be yeah. incredible. If it had been a competition, it would have won, so they didn't want to make it unfair. Yeah. They kept it out of the competition. All right, Keith Phipps, this is to you. Uh, not since The Great Gatsby two years ago has any film coming into town more absurdly oversold than Blank, the sentimental little slum movie that opened yesterday at Cinema 2. Most of the film was photographed on location in seedy blank neighborhoods, and it's one of the film's ironies that a production that puts so such emphasis on realism should, should seem so fraudulent. All right. Um, that's Pauline Kael, correct? No, that no. is not correct. Oh, I read like Pauline Kael. Well, then I... Um, uh, so, seven, so two years after Great Gatsby, which I think was 73... Um, slum movie, nineteen seventy-five. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna slap my forehead when I when you tell me who it is. But uh, all right, I'm opening up, opening up to, to Nathan and Matt. <laughs> opening up to you guys. I think I, I actually blanked out a, a clue that probably would have given it away, which was which was a big mistake on my part. But uh, no, no guesses there. It's Rocky. Uh, Vincent Canby on oh, Rocky. Oh wow! Philadelphia, oh. Philadelphia would have been the giveaway there. Huh. Uh, I should, I should, I should not have said blank. On so that. it must have been seven. Gatsby came out in seventy four then. Okay. Yep, yeah, seventy six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, close, close. Uh, Nathan, this is do, to you. Do. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> At Sexism Funeral, which takes place in a mysterious incense-shrouded chamber of international sisterhood, the women of Abu Dhabi remove their black robes and veils to reveal, this is not a joke, the same hideous, disposable, criminally expensive shreds of cloth and feathers that hang from blank et al.'s emaciated goblin shoulders. Uh, I'm going to say that the movie is Sex in the City 2. Okay, that's correct. <laughs> um, and who is the author of that review? I'm going to say A.O. Scott. Uh, no, that is incorrect. Uh, guy, guys, yeah. you can buzz in here. Nope, it's uh, Lindy West. Oh. Lindy West. Oh, okay, she does fine work. Genevieve knew that. You didn't know that. Uh, yeah, pretty. I knew the movie, but he got that part. Yeah, yeah. And, the... I, and I wondered, you know, what seeing Sex in the City 2 would get me. And then, bam! Several years later, I got half of an answer. You got you got a one you got one point. That's what, got. That's what it got you. One measly point. All right, one more round of this. Uh, 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 Matt Singer to you. Little re- measure of redemption. Uh, to some, very little, very little, <laughs> very little. To some, blank and blank's perception of hell was brilliant. To us, this gory, cold-blooded story of a sick man's lurid descent into violence is ugly and unredeeming. Two stars. Two stars. Keith is, oh, we got both of these guys are ready for ready to jump on this. Uh, two stars makes me think it's Leonard Malton. Yeah, on what movie? Can Can you read the review for me one yeah. more time? To some, Blank and Blank's perception of hell was brilliant. To us, this gory, cold-blooded story of a sick man's lurid descent into violence is ugly and unredeeming. Two freaking stars. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm going to guess Death Wish. Uh, no, that is not correct. Nathan Raven. The movie Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. Two stars. Uh, which inspired uh, a particularly good Mystery Science Theater 3000 segment in which uh, um, uh, they listed various movies that were, per Leonard Malton, uh, better than Taxi Driver. So. <laughs> that, yeah, that would be a long list. Well, I mean, or, or you know, I mean, if you want to go, if you want to go down that route, then you could say um, that Cop and a Half for uh, Roger Ebert is better, better than Blue Velvet. <laughs> yep. um, all right, uh, 
This is a long one, Keith. This is a challenging one. I'm, okay. glad, I'm glad this is to you. Okay. Okay. The success of a movie like Blank makes it even more difficult for anyone to try to do anything worth doing, anything relevant to the modern world, anything relevant or expressive. The banks, the studios, the producers will want to give the public what it seems to crave. The more money these wholesome movies make, the less wholesome will the state of American movies be. It's the big lie, the sugar-coated lie that people seem to want to eat. They even think they, they should feed it to their kids, that it's healthful, wonderful family entertainment. I know I've read this, yeah. but I... Um, this yeah. one got someone fired-ish, kind of. Okay. Uh, this, this was... A, it, the publication was kind of remarkable with the, this review ran in. Yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Um, so I'm going to open this up to the, to the floor. Okay. Um, hmm. Jets? Yeah. Matt or, or, or Nathan? Any guesses? All right, uh, th- that's Pauline Kale again on the sound of music. Oh, oh, she wrote that review for McCall's. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, not not a good fit for uh, for for uh, the, but that read in McCall's, uh, which is pretty great to think about. Um, all right, last one to Nathan Rabin. Here we go. Alrighty. Oh, this is a, this is a, this is a. This it's is worth a, 14 points. I'm, putting so this, I, I'm basically putting this on a T for Nathan. Uh, <laughs> I had a colonoscopy once, and they let me watch it on TV. It was more entertaining than this movie. Oh, God. Uh, that, that sounds like Roger Ebert. That's correct. Um, he does, yes. And that sounds like a Rob Schneider movie. Uh, they, no. Oh, Open it goodness. up. Guys. Yes, Matt Singer. Brown Bunny. That's right. Oh. Matt Singer gets a point. So, so what do we end up with uh, total wise? This is going to be this is going to be ridiculous. Uh, Keith had seven massacre, and, uh, and Matt and Nathan tied at three. Eh. So, uh, good job, everyone. But especially good job to Keith. <laughs> You're uh, all winners, thanks. but more specifically, Keith is. And uh, yeah, you need thanks. and uh, and and uh, I implore you to to read all these fine critics, especially Harry Knowles. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks. Thank you. And now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're in Keith Phipps and Tasha Robinson have 30 seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Pandering to me is encouraged and will likely give you an edge. So, Keith, let's start with you. Three, two, one, go. So inspired by that game we just played, I'd like to recommend the uh, just movie review books. I mean, I mean, there's so many reviews available on the Internet, and that's great. That's awesome. I use it all the time. But just so much of my film education came from just flipping through books by, by Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael and James Agee on film and just look, just reading random reviews of things. It's, it's a wonderful way, first, to acquaint yourself with how film criticism works, but also to find films you might not have otherwise and sort of examine like how they were received when they came out. Um, movie review books. Let's make more of them, and let's read the ones that are out there buzz okay yay movie reviews all right <laughs> in summary movie reviews read them uh tasha robinson three two one go i recently interviewed three young filmmakers daniel kwan daniel Scheinert, and billy chu they're innovators in interactive film and i'm thrilled about their new work but they've also been making short films for years and i hope you'll visit their website danieldaniel.us their work is intense surreal energetic fun and it's free so if you like scott pilgrim versus the world or chronicle and you want to see where they meet start with the short film pockets or check out music videos for the shins tenacious d and a lot of others these guys have a really strong creative sensibility and they're dedicated to doing surprising innovating work huh that's really good. Three uh, seconds under. Wow! Wow! This is a tough one because I I, uh, I think I think both uh, things are very much worth doing. Um, 
Yeah, and there's something to be said actually to to holding a, a to having a film review book in your hand and being able to flip through it, right, Keith? Because because you know when you're on the internet, you look out, you're looking up specific things, but you're, you flip through a book, it's a whole whole other matter. And Tasha, you you these these people, they seem to be on the cutting edge, right? Uh, uh, the future of film, right? Uh, something like that. Let's hope so. Um, Natasha, let's go with you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the the the, the win on this one. Uh, because over I, the whole history of film criticism. Over the entire <laughs> the history future of film over the past. Because I, because I, I've not heard of these 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 gentlemen, and uh, I think it would be it would be fun. Yeah, I want to check out this check site out too. Work. Yeah, for sure. All right, thanks, guys. That does it for episode 19 of the Dissolve Podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. If you have any questions or thoughts, please email us at feedback at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve Podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you'd like, we'd encourage you to post ratings and or comments on the show on iTunes. Our triumphant rise at the top of the podcast world is in your hands, so don't screw this up.